Wimps and posers leave the hall. Recording live from the Black Lodge, it's me, the free will burning, head turning, ass kicking, machismo dripping, mouthpiece of the Southeast, insane Brandon Lane. And I, boy, have I got something in store for you today. I've uh, just a little preface to what's going on. I have been getting a lot of requests from those who uh, probably don't know better that I should be opening up myself a little more. And I think a lot of that is directed in my world-famous rants. Uh, that's not exactly what I have going on today, although I'm sure there will be quite the opportunity for me to rant on certain aspects of what we're going to be doing. So, those of you who know me, my favorite film of all time is the 1984 comedy Triumphant triumphant piece of cinema Ghostbusters. So what we're going to do is, in conjunction with the 2014 Mastered in Beautiful 4K Resolution Blu-ray disc, we're going to pop this in and I'm going to do a running commentary. Now realize that all zero of the people I know who will be listening to this um, probably won't go to all this trouble, but never, never fails that... Uh, I go to all this trouble, even though they want me to do it, they probably won't even hear it, but I'll, oh well. So, with that in mind, uh, this is the, like I said, the 2014 edition. It's the dual disc. Uh, there's only one commercial available version of Ghostbusters, so w whether you have the DVD, the Blu-ray, streaming on whatever service it is available, I'm pretty sure that if you long, as long as you hit play, we'll be in sync. If not, then... Oh, well, that's not my problem. You're the one wanting to hear me, not the other way around. Um, I, For posterity's sake, I am going to be having the, uh, the audio queued up, so if you do try and sync this up, there might be a little overlap with yours, so I would prefer, for so you may hear my voice in its beautiful southern pristineness, to turn your TV down and let the audio from mine be your audio track. So what we're going to do right now is I'm going to hit play. I'll let you uh, cue it up in five, four, three, two, one. So I've got a blue screen that says PG, Parental Guidance Suggested. That may not pop up. So what we'll do, now I'm going to the FBI warning. I will I will say Q exactly when the, the actual movie starts, and that'll give you another opportunity to get the timing just right. Silence, silence, silence. Play. All right, we've got the old, beautiful Columbia Studios picture coming up. When I was a kid, uh, I think this uh, opening credit design probably affected me more than really any other, with the exception of the Paramount Pictures logo. Uh, <clears throat> I always associated the, the Paramount logo with uh, Friday the 13th films, and as a kid, oh my god, Jason terrified me. And to be fair, uh, this movie came out at like the perfect time of my childhood. Um, actually, a month before, no, a month after I was born. So this is uh, 33 years old and some change. Not to give away my age, but uh, it uh, it has grown up with me. 
now back to what I'm saying about the opening the opening thing. Uh, you know, Sony Pictures owns Columbia Pictures now, so it it has a completely different flair in the seeing the 2016 Ghostbusters and, and God, there's so much Sony product placement in it. But that's an entirely different thing. I will, uh, even though I overall didn't hate the movie, I will probably come to a point later on in this film where things get so good that I'll just have to rant about it. This scene right here, you have the, uh, the librarian, Alice, uh, she is sort of setting the tone of the picture. And one of the great things about this movie is that, although I mean, it is a gut-bustingly hilarious film, is that, number one, it's shot like a drama. A lot of uh, comedies of this time were, uh, in particular the movies made by John Landis, and Ivan Reitman. The great thing about this, though, because even though it is a comedy, it sets its world up very earnestly and very seriously. They very easily could have thrown a bunch of jokes in here. They're making the paranormal aspects of this world very real. So Alice is, you know, shuffling about, the cards are shooting out, and there's a genuinely sense, of, uh, tense sense of fear in the film and we're about to get this great right here ah and then we get to hear the very first chords of that wonderful uh ray parker jr music obviously uh very controversial for having been ripped off from i want a new drug by huey lewis in the news or as uh, our russian counterparts would say who in news and the lewis vankman burn hell here on uh on the the door to their uh, their area of study. As a kid, I always uh, found this very confusing, and uh, it wasn't until maybe I was twelve or thirteen that I really come to realize, like, wow, Venkman is really a scumbag. He has some of the uh, the most uh, obvious uh, character flaws of a uh, a 1980s hero, I guess. I'm, I, I guess in, you can call the Ghostbusters heroes. They saved New York from a giant marshmallow man and an interdimensional hopping god. This scene in particular uh, kind of sets up right off the bat that Venkman is a bit of a con artist and may be more interested in what uh, the, uh, the character of Jennifer has going on physically than say, mentally. Uh, Jennifer is played by Jennifer Runyon. I have her autograph. I've never had the opportunity to meet her, but I was uh, lucky enough to procure her autograph through eBay actually not too long ago, which shows you how deep I am into the, the aspects of this film. She means, you know, barely has like five minutes of screen screen time, if even if that, and uh, she is very memorable. And the gentleman right here, uh, those of you who, uh, and I say those of you, no one is going to be listening to this who doesn't know me, and probably nobody who knows me is going to be listening to this, but uh, in the off chance there is someone who is listening to this and has absolutely no idea who I am, well, I work at a haunted house, I'm in charge of a lot of the creative, I'm an actor, I do makeup uh, effects work, and that's not entirely relevant to, to what we're talking about right here, other than this uh, gentleman getting shocked needlessly by Venkman, um, 
bears a striking resemblance to a to a guy named Zach. Shout out to Zach. Woot woot. It's pissing me off. But he's just a, a rail rail thin, uh, funny little guy. Um, well, here he's he's stormed out now. Vagman, uh, he gets to uh, show a little bit of uh, physical affection for for the young lady. You're no fluke, Jennifer. And here we have the introduction of Ray Stance. And right off the bat, you get to see the difference in characterization between Vankman and and Ray. Ray is known as the heart of the Ghostbusters. He's he's academically minded, but he has a very childlike quality to him. He's very enthusiastic, and obviously on the paranormal front i think he's probably not necessarily the most knowledgeable but he's the most emotionally uh the most emotionally guided by it the most emotionally driven by it uh, egon who we have not met but will be very shortly you know very analytical and to the point ray is very much guided by his heart and dan Aykroyd, a genius I don't think there's any need to to point that out. Everybody in this movie um, gives great performances. I, I can't think of a, a performance in this movie that is subpar. Um, but I think Dan Aykroyd's performance is sort of lost in the shovel a little bit because Vankman is so, so memorable, the things he says. And Dan, well, you know, Dan Aykroyd starred in several movies. Uh, I think he, he always tended to not be the one to steal the spotlight. He he always felt like uh, like a guy who would be more suited for the friend or the under the uh, somewhat the straight man. Hilarious guy though, super talented. And then we're here we have Mr. Harold Ramis portraying Egon Spangler. I love the uh, the line of dialogue coming up about him drilling the hole in the head. <laughs> it wouldn't have worked if you hadn't stopped me. Little little quippy things like that are there. Maybe not things that stick out a hundred percent the first time you watch this movie, but it, obviously Ghostbusters is something you should see multiple viewings. This uh, this scene right here. With Alice and the whole, the menstruating line, uh, yet again, you get to a certain age and <sighs> that um has a whole new meaning. Basically, basically saying like, um, is it your t time of the month and you're crazy because of it? Very un unpolitically correct. The world we live in now, um, that's one of those things you maybe uh, squeeze into a Judd Apatow film, but. Yeah, there it is. What has that got to do with it? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. It's moving. I could I could recite this movie just about from uh, uh, from memory. I've seen this film more more times than any other movie in my collection. I have nearly three thousand movies. Not not that that's a huge accomplishment these days, and particularly because everything is digital files and stuff, but all of mine are on hard physical media, and even back before DVDs became a prevalent thing, I had a huge collection of VHSs, which 
would probably overtake my apartment right now. Another great line of throwaway dialogue um, coming up right here about the you know human being with stack books like this. Exactly, beautiful moment. Listen, do you smell something? Uh, I have the script for this uh, for this film, and uh, if you read the script, I mean, it's beat for beat, it, they're they're very similar. But a lot of this movie was uh, was improvised. Obviously, they all come from improvisational backgrounds. Second City, SCTV, Harold Ramis came from, and. Uh, Oh Lord, and you know SNL. Like, uh, well, Ramus was on SCTV, and then uh, and Aykroyd, and and uh, and Bill Murray from the first few years, the really good seasons of of SNL. I love this part right here. Da. <laughs> now, reportedly, I've read so many places that the bookshelf falling was not supposed to happen and I've heard cast members say that and I just I cannot believe I cannot believe that that's true um I think that's just one of those uh let's let's say it let's perpetuate uh, a mythology about the movie not quite on the uh the level of say like the paranormal uh, occurrences on the exorcist the omen or poltergeist but I I, I think they're uh they're just kind of driving into that whole angle with this and here we are 33 years later and look at this these special effects films made today you know they spend millions and millions of dollars on shots of you know of cgi they're driving grabbing Ray's ear, always like that. Um, but these effects really, really hold up. I mean, I, I guess you could argue that maybe the uh, the terror dogs, when, when you get to the part where uh, they're uh, sort of claymation, that uh, they stick out a little bit. But for a 33-year-old film, it, it looks great, especially I'm watching it in the 4K uh, transfer. It's very crisp. Originally, <laughs> the the small small details you don't you don't necessarily see uh, the first time or maybe even the twentieth time you watch the movie. Just uh, when when Peter is asking her where she's from originally, and his hair is just blowing ever so slightly. Now right here you can see it right here. Get her. <laughs> Now, uh, Ghostbusters exist in a time before the PG-13 rating existed, so it is rated PG because they never went back and re-rated it. But, man, there's a lot of adult innuendo in, in this film. I think uh, if it came out now, it would definitely uh, be a PG-13. But uh, the scares in this film, even though, like, I mean, obviously the comedy is at the forefront, there's a lot of parts of this film that are genuinely creepy. The taxicab ghost, 
uh, the arms that pop out of uh, Dana's chair when um, she's about to be possessed by Zool. Bust some heads in a spiritual sense. Uh, for years I had this on VHS as a kid, and when he gives Egon the candy bar right here, I never could figure out what that was. Because, you know, 480 resolution VHS, when you had it on a TV that was ba barely putting that out, it just looked like a, a pixelated, not a pixelated, but, you know, a blurry mess. And we have Dean Yeager. Uh, I have a lot of people... Asked me uh, over the years, you know, if I had the opportunity, what I would do with a Ghostbusters 3. And uh, I can tell you I have put a lot of thought into it. Uh, in a nutshell, my, my whole take on the film would be essentially what they had in mind about passing the, uh, the reins off to a new team. Uh, the Ghostbusters, you know, having taken more of an administrative role. You know, Peter is uh, CEO of the company. He's sitting high. Uh, Egon has gone back to more of an academic background. Uh, Ray's in charge of um, the uh, development of technology. And then you have uh, Winston, always the low man on the total, which is unfortunate because Ernie Hudson is terrific. Uh, but Ernie Hudson's Winston taking on the role of of the trainer and getting these uh, new recruits ready for uh, ghost busting in the new millennia. It's Ray, fate, call it karma. That everything happens for a reason. We were destined to kicked out of this dump. I I love these musical cues uh, and we're Bernstein. Uh, that's one of the things that the sequel really lacks, and that's not knocking uh, it in of itself. Because I think uh, the the uh, the march music that's associated with Vigo is terrific, but this score uh, is one of the. When I was a kid, it was one of the few scores that I, I had a part of my uh, my musical library, which is pretty vast and very rock and metal heavy. So that shows you how like how impactful this music has been on me. But to jump back to what I was talking about. My my whole story about Ghostbusters 3 would have revolved around the political correct idea of do the undead have rights? So there's a big uh, thing on the horizon for, for New York because they just can't catch a break between marshmallow men, uh, d demon, demonically possessed paintings, uh, mandalas that... Uh, and slime-filled uh, subway systems, there's just always something on the horizon. Uh, but you have this paranormal event that's sort of on the horizon. And uh, there's, a, there's a great film uh, called Mr. Smith Goes to Washington where uh, James Stewart has this, like, filibuster, and it's just it's one of the most memorable moments in cinema. And to me, like, where that was played completely seriously, I think there's a a wonderful slant on this that could have been, I mean, a great acting performance from Bill Murray where you could have played up the whole, the whole seriousness of it. But, uh, you know, with that Bill Murray charm on top of that, I think a lot of the takes that maybe made Bill Murray not want to do it is that, okay, we've already done this. Uh, 
But I think if you had presented him with more of an acting challenge, then perhaps he would have been more apt to take it on. The other aspect would have been sort of a bonding relationship between he and, as we're seeing right now, the beautiful Sigourney Weaver. Not uh, too fresh from uh, her action turn as Ripley in, uh, in Ridley Scott's amazing film Alien. And uh, I've heard some and read some awesome stories that when she uh, <laughs> when she auditioned for this role, uh, they got down, or I don't know if it was her idea or they asked her to do this, but it showed her, her willingness for the role is that she got down and she acted like a dog. She barked. She acted possessed. And, uh, you know, when you're a six-foot-tall, beautiful woman, that just, uh, to me, that's, that's hilarious. It shows her that she's... Uh, she wanted the role very badly. Evidently, uh, it took a lot for this uh, script to get off the ground. A lot, of, a lot of it having to do for budgetary reasons. Um, but even though Alien had been a few years old, it was '79. This was shot in, I believe, '83. Um, maybe uh, they, she had been a bit typecast as, you know, maybe not as funny. And even though she plays the smart. Uh, straight role. I mean, she does have her her comedic moments. Her her banter with uh, with both uh, Rick Moranis here and with um, Bill Murray is just wonderful. I love this of him getting these locked himself out of his apartment and his uh, his <laughs> pants are too high. This commercial, wonderful uh, Egon hitting his mark, which was a purposeful choice on his part and Dan Aykroyd man his his dictum and the way he delivers those lines nobody can spit uh, techno babble like uh, Dan Aykroyd and obviously like what I was saying before and maybe got a little off track um, he uh, he's his uh, his father his, his whole lineage has this sort of paranormal background I'm speaking of Dan Aykroyd, the man, more so than the character, but uh, the character, uh, as you find out in the video game, uh, was in the seminary. So he has uh, this vast religious knowledge, and uh, he's very interested in the paranormal. And some point between seminary and uh, and Ghostbusters, he he had a you know a change of heart and went into the science. This is a this is a a story that's unique in that it it blends both uh, matters of the paranormal and and science. A lot of a lot of films dealing with paranormal always have sort of a a strictly uh, religious slant to them. I guess maybe you can make the argument that Exorcist Two incorporated some science into it, but nobody wants to talk about that film because it sucks donkey balls. Zool beautiful that scream uh, back to my pitch for Ghostbusters 3 uh, the, the relationship between between Oscar and uh, and Peter obviously he's sort of using Oscar's means to uh, to get back in touch with with uh, with Dana but I think it would be it would have been cool to to have a uh, kind of a fun bonding scene where Dean Dean Yeager is still at 
the university, and, and obviously they've let uh, uh, Egon come back uh, because he has, you know, several years of notoriety. And, um, but, you know, Peter's obviously not very welcome because his ideas are the most popular tribe. He is a poor scientist and all that nonsense, but uh, uh, by proxy, because of his uh, association with with Peter, perhaps uh, young Oscar Barrett, who uh, would be, you know, maybe his first or second year in college, has uh, got a little bit of uh, the unfortunate nature of uh, Peter has rubbed off on him. Nice kid, but maybe has uh, some tendencies to be a little... Sleazy's not the best word. He just has, uh, he has Peter's stink on him, we'll say that. So I thought it would be a, an interesting premise to have uh, maybe Dean Yeager, even even with all of this, the amounting uh, presence of paranormal over the years, that there's still a subsect of people that's like, oh, it's just hooey, you know. As Walter Peck would say, a, a light and sensor show or whatever. So they uh, they extract a ghost from the, the containment unit. They let it loose just to... So you maybe a little kind of a, a new age animal house kind of vibe to it oh I love that Peter just jumping up and here he goes over the banister I'm Peter Vankman can I help you <laughs> look at his eyes he's very serious oh, Annie Potts is terrific uh, the the Ghostbusters cartoon show obviously very very uh, impactful on me as a kid uh, because in, in between movies it was the only media we had and it's a lot different now where you have constant uh, media influx and everything is uh, franchised a thousand times over but I mean there were no there was no toys or anything until the until the cartoon series the first season of the animated series I will hold up against anything of that time and really up to a lot of cartoon series now uh, the, the syndicated episodes that got away with so much you know references to the occult and H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's uh, Cthulhu and uh, a lot of things that just would not fly in, in television especially a Saturday morning uh, ABC cartoon uh the second season on, however, there was a company called Q5. They were a consulting firm. Uh, they may have been Canadian. I'm not entirely certain on that. I probably need to fact-check myself. I know a lot, but I am not perfect on this endeavor. Uh, <laughs> but uh, they they were asked to do a report of, like, you know, what, what they could do. Oh, oh, interject for here. Beautiful matte painting shot. Uh, the building is actually there, and then they added a couple of stories on top of it. Uh, but anyways, uh, Q5, they they presented this report that just had a bunch of nonsense in it. They're like, uh, the first season, and maybe even like some of the second season, uh, Janine is very much, her, her cartoon avatar is based off of Annie Potts. And all of a sudden, they, they switched voice actresses, and they softened her look, and they they made this ridiculous point that her, her glasses were pointy, and that scared children. I, that is r ridiculous on so many levels. 
So there is this contingency of people who like the their newer. In some regards, I guess the animation got a little better because the first season was so popular, they pumped a little bit more money in there, which is brilliantly shown uh, by the, uh, I believe it's the first episode of the second season. Um, it's a Sam Hain episode. And then uh, they did a nighttime special, which is also a Sam Hain episode. Uh, I'm, I'm actually thinking of getting my facts straight and correct here. It's called The Halloween Door. That may be the episode I'm thinking of, but the, the animation is terrific in that. But it was a... It was a uh, a primetime special. Uh, Lorenzo Music, who uh, actually helped create the Bob Newhart show uh, and voiced Garfield, uh, voiced Peter Vankman, and evidently Bill Murray offhand made a comment that he doesn't sound anything like me. So he, he either quit or was fired, depending on who, uh, who you ask. And Dave Coulier took his place. This, this era of the cartoon is for me sort of a sore spot. There's no disrespect to Coulier because he's trying, he's very much trying to do Bill Murray and, and has a decent inflection. I just don't think his comic timing was anywhere near as good as Lorenzo Music. And then uh, rounding out the cast, you've got uh, Maurice LaMarche, the wonderful Maurice LaMarche, doing a spot on Harold Ramis. Um, the legendary Frank Welker doing uh, Ray Stance. Pretty much doing his uh, standard, his standard voice, uh, very similar to Fred from Scooby Doo. Voice say Zool. Winston, who has yet to show up, uh, Ernie Hudson auditioned for his own role and was turned down by Arsenio Hall. Now Arsenio Hall was on the rise. Um, and obviously he became a very big star with uh, Eddie Murphy and Coming to America and and then uh, a few other wonderful films and had his own popular nighttime show around the time where uh, Johnny Carson was maybe running out of, out of steam a little bit. And this is pre-Leno and, and back when everybody thought that uh, Letterman was going to get that spot. getting a little off track uh the the cartoon had a very very uh, uh big impact on on me and a whole generation of kids but it always made me angry that there weren't toys for this film and I read in the 90s, it may have been in Toy Fair magazine, that Bill Murray, the holdup was Bill Murray refused to, to give his likeness. Well, that all changed. Uh, Mattel did a, uh, a series, a six-inch six inch, uh, series based off of the first two films and uh, from the one figure from the video game. But uh, it was four, the Four Horsemen, the sculptors, they, they, they got their likenesses pretty good for a six-inch scale. But it isn't really until uh, Diamond Select in the past year two years uh they did uh more of a seven inch scale figures and wow those those figures are terrific they they've captured the likeness uh of bill murray and the rest of the guys just uh so well my only thing that really bothers me about those figures is uh you know if you'll look well when it cuts back from to upstairs Egon very clearly has round glasses. They gave him these weird 
uh, almost like uh, semicircle glasses to the figure, and he 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 looks like a I don't know what you would call it. It's sort of like a like a goth like goth girl with short hair. But other than that, those figures are terrific. Now here we are. We're like around thirty, a little less than thirty minutes into the film. Uh, I'm guessing on that. But if you check the time cue, it's probably uh, I'm a little off. But we've got our our suiting up here. I, I love that where he he kind of slips into like oh. I love, and this shows you just their personalities are so different. The characters, you know, Ray is a hundred miles an hour excited about it. Uh, Vankman comes down and he's still got his uh, Chinese takeout, and uh, Egon's still very stilted. That scene sped up a little bit. I give it a little more of a frantic pace. It was a, a thing you saw a lot in 70s and 80s films. Uh, they have like a lot of camera tricks and stuff now where they can make things uh, speed things up. I love this right here. Oh yeah, looking at that lady. He's such a perv. Now this actor, during the uh, he's the manager of the hotel. I was uh, very, very disheartened that when they did the video game, they didn't get him back. And I'm blanking on his name, but uh, he was always on TV shows around this time. Uh, God, I miss this has been a long, long time ago, but uh, I can remember towards the, maybe like the sixth or seventh season of The X-Files, uh, he has a... Um, he has a scene, or uh, he's in a couple episodes. It's one of the uh, like the big cliffhanger ones, and uh, and being very excited, like oh, he he was in Ghostbusters. This uh, this scene right here, they're about to do getting in the elevator. Every every night after getting off work, without fail. Uh, me and uh, one of my uh, my co-workers named Josh, who's also a big Ghostbusters fan, without fail, one of us pretty much says this uh, verbatim. I mean, talk about iconic shots in films. I mean, like, literally, there's nothing going on here. It's just three guys standing, and I see this picture so much. A testament to the, the great acting ability of Harold Ramis playing the straight man. Just backing away. This movie has a very, very fast pace, but it 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 still it still knows when to stop. And this right here is a perfect example. Now you've got <laughs> her her reaction is is gold. What the hell are you doing? See that you have a couple of seconds. To kind of let it breathe. We thought you were somebody else. We can do more damage that way. Little things like that. They 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 knew how to perfectly give the the scenes time to breathe. I, and I, this is something you'll never see in uh, in movies. You've got them smoking. <laughs> in the in the hallways of a hotel the world has changed so much and here we have the 
first appearance of Onion Head, later to become known as Slimer. Uh, he's sort of an amalgamation of, uh, he's supposed to be the physical manifestation of gluttony, um, and a, a little bit of a nod to John Belushi, who would have been in this film had he not, uh, unfortunately passed away for, from a drug overdose in the early 80s. Oh, those effects are still so good. I love this right here, the crashing into the wall. Oh, This, this, as a kid, I, I never quite understood this, because he's obviously a man, but, like, Egon, he so pokes him. It's like, okay, you're real. Don't mind me. It's such a little thing, but it adds so much. You you know so much about his character just from the little things he does. I love the non-reaction from Bill Murray. Come in, Ray. Big Ben, Big Ben. There's a, a very much a cadence to the way that these actors um, interact with these things. And look, I mean, like he's he's obviously uh, bracing himself for impact. He doesn't attempt to move, <laughs> and here he is writhing around. And the almost um, stuff looks like straight up snot. Ugh. The 4K uh, transfer of this film is so beautiful. You can actually see the the green color of the ectoplasm or the slime, whatever you want to call it. On the VHS growing up, it was so washed out, and it, it looked just like straight-up bile, you know, snot. And... <laughs> This ballroom scene, I'm sure, has uh, inspired so many people to try and rip the tablecloth off of a table. The flowers are still standing. I know um, my my grandparents, when I was uh, I was maybe 13 years old, uh, they had their wedding vows renewed. And there's a community center uh, where they lived, and they had the whole ceremony. And towards the end of the night... I begged, I begged my parents, like, please let me try this. And obviously, they, they knew better. Um, <laughs> would this not just be so much fun? Like, I think of cinematic universes that you could live in. Um, the Ghostbusters universe would be would be a blast. You get to go around causing property damage with, you know, next to no... Yeah, don't cross the streams. Okay, I guess this is maybe the one drawback. If you if you cross the streams, you may uh, cause a lot of uh, irrevocable uh, situations to arise. A lot of the story is integrated in such ways where they... In screenwriting, they tell you to show, not say... And if you're going to give, you know, very specific dialogue, don't don't just throw it in there when it's happening. Set things up like okay, okay. There's a thing about if you if you introduce a gun in the first act, it needs to be used in the third act, and that's sort of what they're doing right now. He's saying don't cross the streams. That way, in the third act, when they say, well. 
this may be the only way we're going to be able to stop this. Close the gate, you know, send Gozer back to a par uh, parallel dimension. It, uh, it has a little more weight because we've already established the stakes of doing this uh, could go very wrong. Now, obviously, it's a movie and you're pretty sure the, um, uh, here it is. The flowers are still standing. But if you if you introduce these things, you know subconsciously it's in your head. So when it when it happens, you you've you've raised your stakes. But the script is so sharp in their in their delivery of these lines. Like there's a lot of expository information they give, but they give it in such organic ways. You don't feel like okay, they're just telling me things to set up so the. <laughs> the so they're not just feeding you plot points. I mean, they're they're showing and saying. This is a very unconventional movie in a lot of ways. Uh, a lot in screenwriting, you have a character and he will start in one place and end in another. It's called a character arc. No one really has a character arc in this film. Uh, Dana and Peter have a budding relationship. He, uh, she's right about him. He's he's not good for her. But you know what? His his charms win her over. He doesn't have any character growth. It isn't like he finds himself, uh, you know, regretful for his uh, sleazy ways. I and, <sighs> comedy is a unique is a unique genre to where like. A lot of times, plot is not always the most important thing, but this movie has a strong plot and, and unconventional villains. Like, okay, a lot of people ask you, like, who is the villain of this movie? And nine times out of ten, people will say, well, it's Gozer. That's not really the case. The The villain of this movie is the EPA. That is a radical, a radical thing for 1984. We were kind of coming into the whole idea of, like, you know, protecting the environment and what uh, repercussions do uh, companies' waste have on, you know, water and ground and things like that. And Walter Peck, oh my lord, it, what what a memorable dick. I mean, well, I guess in this case, dickless. Uh, one of the greatest screen presence uh, villains of all time. This, uh, this montage, you know, finally we're going to get the... Uh, the full Ghostbusters theme song, them suiting up, and uh, it's just so nostalgic. As many times as I've seen this, I still get chills. Uh, this scene right there, the the uh, logo is flipped on the car. Uh, in editing, there's a thing called directionality, where you know you don't cross your lines. Uh, you have to keep uh, the flow of the film moving in a direction that makes logical sense so they probably shot that scene out of context not even realizing they were going to do a montage per se but then when they got into the editing process they're like okay well we need a shot here well we have this one uh, but it's going in the wrong direction so they just flipped the frame as a kid that drove me crazy i didn't understand about editing but i but so i'm thinking like why is the logo painted uh backwards on the car and you have uh, the late Casey Kasem, uh, uh, obviously better known as the 
the voice of Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. So there's another weird uh, connection to Scooby-Doo with Ghostbusters, who I guess in a lot of ways were kind of like the uh, a proto-Ghostbuster proto outfit, although uh, until the 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo, uh, they all turned out to be uh, amusement park owners who were unhappy because their business was going to pot. I, I mean, I can't remember. They're, every episode is the same as Scooby-Doo is the point I'm trying to make. They would have got away with it if it hadn't been for you, uh, you meddling kids. The Ghostbusters super diet. Um, one would argue that maybe uh, Dan Aykroyd should have went on that a while ago. That's mean to say. Um, this scene right here uh, with um, with Ray getting the uh, uh, mouth hug from the ghost. Man, as a kid, I I just thought, oh my god, the ghost is taking his. Uh, <laughs> is taking his belt off. And I had, I, I thought it was funny in of itself. And then around the time I was 12 or 13 years old, you know, you see this again, and you're like, wait a minute, I, that's a blowjob. This this movie, more than any other film in my life, has, uh, has sort of been like a reoccurring event. You, you see it through the eyes of a child, and you enjoy it because, like, it's... Uh, funny on a superficial level and you know it's colorful and there's a lot of special effects it's just an enjoyable film and then you get to a point where you know you're a little older and you start realizing all of the off-color humor in the film and the dickless line uh i was watching ghostbusters on tbs it was maybe like a sunday i remember it. i was in seventh grade I had seen this movie a hundred times. More than that. That's an understatement. And on TV, I had never known that they, they did alternate takes with the dialogue so they could edit it for television because you call someone dickless on television back then, uh, the world would have ended. But uh, it gets to the scene later on in the film where in the mayor's office and they have the debate with Walter Peck whether or not they're con men or not, and uh, is this true? Yes, it's true. This man has no dick. And it very clearly, the line was changed, and I'm like, wait a minute, that's not right. It just didn't sound right. He calls him a Wally Wick. So I immediately popped my VHS in. I get it to that point, and uh, the great dickless here, and then is this true? Yes, this man has no dick. And for the first time, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I fell on the floor laughing. I was like, that is the the best put-down line I'd ever heard in a movie. Now, since then, you know, there have been some great ones, but I, I still think that's one of the best uh, off-the-cuff lines. I mean, from the setup to the payoff, it's it's beautiful. Mwah! Beautiful. Um, my point being is that I I enjoyed it for different reasons, and, and now I'm in my adulthood, which is awful to say, but I've gotten to see this movie through the eyes of understanding, you know, the, the plot is unique, um, the improvisational nature, of, and Bill Murray's performance, like, I, I think he, he, I don't, I can't really say this is his best performance, because I think, uh, that would be Groundhog Day, because he has a character arc, but from pure line deliver, delivery and screen presence, he, this is an Oscar-worthy performance. Comedy is always, always shafted when the Academy is concerned because I guess comedy, like horror, is super subjective, and this is a, a horror 
action comedy. There's, it was it it had it had a a lot against it. Now it was nominated for um, Academy Awards for special effects, but it lost out to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which oddly enough, uh, Dan Aykroyd has a cameo in. So you see, everything is intertwined. Being an adult and uh, and seeing this film, uh, some of the other things that that stick with me, like I was saying about the the EPA, who are we're about to, uh, you know, not long from now get a uh, a glimpse of. I uh, that's just a, an interesting an interesting connection to the. You know, you're a, a struggling small business, and here comes the law, the government, to try and take uh, money out of your pocket and put it into theirs. And the, the pros and cons, the EPA, I could rant about that. I, I think that there's a lot of uh, a lot of good in um, you know wanting to keep the environment clean, but then there's a lot of uh, regulatory things that just put money in the pockets of some bureaucrats, um, and there is a subsect of people over the years that have reevaluated this movie who um, definitely want to paint Walter Peck as uh, a white collar hero who is just doing his job, and he is. But Vankman, they're the same. They're the same person on different spectrums. They're both assholes. They present each other. With opposition, if they'd work together, then I still think the Ghostbusters probably would get closed down because who knows what regulatory uh, things they're uh, not adhering to. But you know, you've got to have a you got to have your MacGuffin to roll the plot along. William Atherton is terrific. Uh, you know, he's in the Die Hard movies as well, and he plays a a sleazy uh, television reporter who. I guess would be like uh, you could probably uh, maybe refer to him as sort of like a prototypical uh, TMZ of, of the of the '80s. That was the closest amalgamation, or the closest closest thing to those. This uh, you keep harping on the the 4K resolution, but you keep looking at the background and all the details, the you know, the newspaper clippings and stuff on the wall. Like none of this stuff was even remotely visible. Uh, in the in the uh, VHS and even in the DVD uh, versions, the first DVD I ever owned was Ghostbusters. I was in I was maybe a junior in high school. I started working at a steakhouse called um, Western Sizzlin. I cooked in the kitchen. That job was awful, but uh, for the first time in my life, you know, I had a car, I had a job, I had disposable income. It was maybe like Fourth of July, or it was a, it was the weekend of you know some kind of holiday, and they were having a a sale on electronics, and it just got the best of me. I wanted a DVD player really badly, and they were starting to come down in price because when they first became you know, available to the masses. I mean, they were six, seven, eight hundred dollars, and I got uh, a Vizio 
which uh, I wish I still had it. The thing lasted for years, and it was region-free, so I could play European DVDs and all kinds now. And that's the great thing about Blu-ray. Blu-ray does not have region coding on it. Um, so uh, a Blu-ray from Australia will play in America. Why they needed region codings to begin with is insulting. Here we have the, the beautiful, beautiful Gozer, uh, Gozer Temple. Uh, going back to the, the figures I was telling you about earlier, uh, this the Diamond Select series, uh, instead of having a Build-A-Figure, which is pretty standard in action figure sets these days, it came with a, a Build-A-Diorama, and the thing is massive. Uh, for the longest time, because you know, the figures came, they didn't come out at the same time, they released them in threes, and it ended up being 15 figures, a little more with the, the variants, but the variants doesn't don't come with the pieces. And I finally broke down, I opened them all up, and the display, the display is enormous. Uh, I currently have it sitting on, uh, right behind me, uh, on, uh, on my refrigerator, and it's so big that it's hanging off the sides. So one day, um, when I get out of the Black Lodge, is what I call my apartment, uh, I may, maybe can build a shelf big enough for it. Uh, but as right now, every time um, I go to get something out of my refrigerator, I end up knocking the figures down. Got to get some figure stands. NECA, shout out to NECA. If you happen to hear this, send me some free shit because uh, my action figures keep falling. Even though you didn't make these action figures, your uh, your action figure stands are top notch. So keep up the good work. Uh, the little trail off there from uh, from Lewis. Let me. In. Um, that, um, that comes back a little later when he goes to the Fiddler on the Green restaurant and he slides down because the terror dog is going to be getting him. This, uh, this scene right here, uh, when I was going through, um, the throes of puberty, uh, had a bit of an impact on me because, uh, you know, she starts stripping down her, her leggings and stuff. Uh, not long ago, I, I saw a picture of Sigourney Weaver, her high school yearbook photo. Oh my lord, she was she was adorable. Just cute little chubby cheeks and those pretty eyes. Um, she she's not she's not built like uh, a lot of women in Hollywood. I mean, being super tall, which is normally a thing I don't. I don't really like him being five seven, and uh, built like the the Wolverine. I uh, tend to go for a smaller, shorter girl, but um, I mean she's she's very striking. Her eyes, her her features are very uh, pronounced. That effect right there, um, in our haunted house. So we have uh, a low rent version of that it's just uh some nylon stretched over a frame and uh you know you stretch through it and it gives you a really nice uh creepy effect those arms if you look in the floor you can see the track where the 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 seat was moving along movie magic that that's the thing like uh, on vhs you would never notice that so, updating your films with a higher res scan has positive and negatives. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a perfect example. 
Um, I refuse to get it on Blu-ray because to me, I've seen, I saw a an actual uh, project, you know, film reel projected screening of it, and it added so much character to the film. And getting it on DVD, they cleaned it up a lot, um, especially with the uh, the 40th anniversary edition. But it still has that grainy look. And then I saw screenshots from the the 4K blu-ray edition and they have cleaned it up so much it, it's just it's too by the way that's casey Kasem's wife um uh, i know uh she's sort of come under fire uh when uh when he when he had died of you know releasing his body back for burial and his kids were angry about it not to get off topic um There we have the first uh, good shot of the terror dog. I, see that that's comedy gold right there. Of the okay, who brought the dog? Oh, and now we've got our our stop motion animation. Uh, <laughs> anytime, uh, you know, you see it and it's actually moving around. Otherwise, it's you know it it's in the floor. And uh, I wish I could have pointed it out a little better, but when it first pops out and you see it on the floor in Lewis's uh, apartment there, you can see the puppeteer if you really look for him. These things right here don't look too bad. This location that he's going to, Fiddler on the Green, it was a very famous restaurant in in New York, and unfortunately, they, they tore it down several years ago. I've always wanted to make a pilgrimage up there to Tribeca and check out the uh, the firehouse, the hook and ladder number eight, uh, and the, the New York Public Library, and this was obviously one of the areas that I would have wanted to go to, but it's, you can still go there, it's just the building is no, no longer there. <laughs> the slight upturn inflection on his voice as he slides down and then nobody they look at him and then nobody does anything it's so terrific little things like that uh i know that's sort of a, a new york state of mind a new york groove uh as ace fraley would say um when i when i was in high school i had a, a psychology i had a psychology course and we did a there was a, a portion of it where we they talked. Our teacher taught us about uh, in New York, uh, a woman was on the street, basically being murdered in front of people. Not to get like real for a moment, but um, was being murdered, and there were, you know, a dozen people watching it happen, and she's calling out for help, and nobody does anything. So that idea, like. It, of those people looking and seeing like something happened and then they just go right back to their, their normal, you know, conversations like be became even funnier after learning about this. Uh, when, when we did this, this study, it gave me a great opportunity. Uh, cause our teachers, like if you can find any, uh, examples in media of something like this occurring, uh, you can, you can bring it in and we'll show it. And I was sort of torn between 
showing this in class or there's a great scene in Friday the 13th part 8 where they're on a they're on the subway and and uh the two characters are looking for you know help and like help Jason's coming and the and uh nobody pays him any mind I I I ultimately went with uh, the the Friday the 13th just because it was a little more taboo um the scene in Ghostbusters is kind of is, is obviously played for comedy, so I went with the Friday the Thirteenth. Uh, this this scene right here, uh, hmm. <laughs> I guess the roses worked. Do you want this body? Is as a trick question. Uh, I've uh, not to get too in depth in my personal life, but I've always said that I would know it was love with a woman if she told me, take me now, sub-creature. Which, obviously, as a, as a kid, like, this is a part of the movie where I'm not interested. This, like, eh, this kissy stuff. And then you get to that certain point, you're like, well, I kind of like what's going on here. Although, one of the more controversial aspects of this movie, and one that is, uh, in general glossed over by people is uh, when Peter he uses Thorazine to knock her out now he makes it very clear he has degrees in psychology and parapsychology not psychiatry that, vo that voice uh, is Ivan Reitman by the way if he had a doctorate in psychiatry then you could argue it would somewhat make logical sense that maybe maybe he would have Thorazine on him but I have to say it makes him look like a rapist <laughs> why did you bring something that could knock your date out on a date um, so I can't say that this is definitely a point of the film where you could argue that maybe they didn't get their facts right. At least I hope that's the case, because um, I just can't think about one of my cinematic heroes um, being a uh, that big of a dirtbag. He's an acceptable level of a dirtbag. Uh, Bill Murray's performance in this movie in particularly, the character of Peter Vankman has rubbed off on me I love this right here. <laughs> it's rubbed off on me in so many ways. And I, I, I mean, I'm not that character, but there's a lot of aspects of him that I, I find that I, that I share. I am a grade A smart ass. And I mean, I'm, I'm not quite on the, the David Letterman, Bill Murray level. Um, because they, they elicit a lot more, happy reactions from people but uh on the other end of the spectrum of like uh, being able to piss people off i i could have a phd in that these little performances these little just throwaway you know nothing roles are are, are so memorable this the, the can lady right here <laughs> what an asshole and these cops you know dropping off or picking up or picking up, dropping off. Dropping off or picking up. Dropping off. You're such a humanitarian. I'm not sure he's human. That's coming up. 
it just makes me wonder, like, what are what are we missing here? Like, and he, yeah, he was running around saying crazy shit, but what did he do that required them to put him in a straitjacket in the back of the you know the the paddy wagon? I'm, I don't think he's human. That's that, and his delivery is so good. I I can't tell you how many times as a kid, uh, being at my grandmother's house, watching this, uh, you know, putting a colander on my head and and reciting this st- stuff like uh, like biblical verses. <laughs> Yes, have some. Rick Moranis' performance is uh, another one, like like Dan Aykroyd's. I think it's a little bit underrated. Of all the great movie nerds, uh, you know, he's he's played a couple of the most notable. You know, Honey, I blew up. Honey, I blew up. Honey, I shrunk the kids. Uh, Inventing that that shrink ray, and then here he is, is uh, you know the the lovable loser Lewis Tully, who's been possessed by Vins with a Z, not Vince, Vins Clortho, Keymaster of Gozer. I love he puts the pizza on his face. <laughs> uh, you get a half smirk from Egon there. One of the the key traits of his uh, of his character is that. He he's constantly eating snacks, and that he never smiles. Is look, there? There's a picture of of her when she was young. Uh, but yeah, he's uh, back to the whole whacked her up with. He he can't even he can't even say it in a way that doesn't come off as creepy. Whacked her up with thirty three hundred cc's of Thorazine. Uh, for years, not re- not realizing the Bunsen burner was uh, boiling the the water for the coffee back there, and he brings him a frying pan and gives him the lamp. Little things like that, so memorable. He ki- he kisses her collarbone. Man, he's such a Creepy perf. <laughs> this scene right here, even as a kid, it uh, I think it affected me the way, the same way, the the whole biblical aspect and the talking between between Winston and Ray here about you know, the end of days. It really has that great foreboding nature to it. You you need to throttle your movie. There's a good ebb and flow of saying, starting it out seriously, you know, kind of having the fun escalate. You know, they, they bust their first ghost, and then, you know, they have the, the EPA, which is uh, played for comedy, but it's going to build to a, a scene that's very serious. But you need that those grounding moments where you're reminded that there are things at stake. And... Uh, you could really argue that this movie didn't need a sequel. The characters are so vibrant, and the world is so interesting. I think they waited too long. Uh, the happiest two weeks of my childhood 
was uh, July 16th, 1989 and July 21st, 1989, because the 16th is when Ghostbusters 2 came out and the next week was Batman. That was the hardest, hardest two weeks of my life to get through because those days that were not Friday, I wanted them to be so, so badly. And uh, getting to see Ghostbusters 2 in the theater, in particularly now that the cut of the film that has been released is not the version they showed in the theater, and I can hold my hand to my heart and swear on my mother's grave that there's a scene where Eugene Levy comes out is the one who gets them out of the the insane asylum because they were committed because they're, you know, interfering with uh, the mayor and, you know, and all that. And, uh... But th those two weeks, and maybe the happiest I, I was as a child, um, Batman, obviously, uh, at the time, that was like the the biggest movie, the biggest phenomenon I, I had lived through. I mean, I was six. The perfect age of uh, susceptibility to, to media in, in all its forms. These these bit players are so good. The cop and the... I always used to call the, the guy in the hard hat who's there from the city to, to turn the stuff off. I always used to call him Gilligan because he, he bears a striking resemblance to uh, to Bob Denver who played Gilligan on Gilligan's Island. Look at, the, look at the performance. You don't notice these things because you're paying attention to the main actors saying their, their lines and giving you the exposition to why you shouldn't shut off the the uh, containment unit but if you look at the shit that Rick Moranis is doing he's so funny and this is stuff that like I never noticed growing up as a kid but seriously look at him he looks like a like a young Bob Denver <laughs> Shut it off! Telling him he can shoot him. That's a pretty, uh, pretty clear indication to uh, the uh, mess. He's sniffing him like, oh my god! But uh, yeah, the the dickishness of Walter Peck. Oh shit! Ah, uh, this is such a some beautiful uh, matte painting work here. When they run outside and the uh, it blows and shoots through the roof, because obviously they didn't do that. Look at that! Oh no! Now the keymaster and the gatekeeper, they're. They're free to find each other. There is a trope in, in a lot of science fiction films about there being a portal in the sky. Pretty much every science fiction film that has come out in the past decade has overdone it. But at the time, like I can't remember too many movies. Uh, right there's Ron Jeremy, 
uh, making a, a cameo in the in the film, the uh, the famed adult film star. How he ended up uh, in this movie, and oddly enough, in the uh, the adult version of this movie, makes him uh, uh, pretty significant. Uh, but how I ended up in this, who knows? I love this line here from uh, from Egon. Your mother, because it's the closest you get to see him like being emotional. Your mother, that's great. Now you see the Stay Puffed uh, logo on the the side of the building. That's a little bit of foreshadowing going in. Well, I mean, obviously earlier when they're in the apartment and uh, Dana is. Um, uh, Starts having other paranormal things happen. There's safe of marshmallow uh, packet on the counter when the eggs are blowing up. But like I was saying about the the whole thing about crossing the streams and introducing it early in the film to bring to bring it back full circle later on. That's a nice little way of introducing the character without making it so obvious. Show, don't say. Okay, as a kid, this two second scene. Oh my god, I, I would always close my eyes. I was so terrified at the taxi cab ghost. It's amazing to look at uh, the effects in this movie as opposed to the 2016 film. Everything was CGI in that and I mean these are a lot of these are optical effects but I mean the 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 ghost they're all puppets and animatronics and they're they're they still hold up so the big burning question how do I feel about the 2016 film in of itself I think it's fine it, it's a movie that's trying too hard to be funny tonally it's completely different but structurally they have the same beats if you're going to do something do something different so I didn't have a problem that it was an all out comedy that's fine make it your own but tie it in with the first movie or don't redo the same beats they, there's just too much to to hold it hold against the film this movie is quite nearly as perfect as a comedy can be especially considering that it's such a unique comedy that has all these scientific and paranormal elements to it it's it's in a class of its own there's the the old adage you know lightning in a bottle that's what this is that you can't reproduce this the sequel has a lot of the same problems you you take the same beats i think ghostbusters 2 is terrific um, the first third of it. Then uh, everything past the uh, past the courtroom's Glary Brothers scene is just retreading stuff from the first movie. I wish uh, they had integrated, you know, Lewis a little more into the thing. They should have showed him his progression in wanting to become a Ghostbuster, and maybe them like, you know, no, nah, you're not really cut out for this, or. And then him proving himself at the end. I think that would have been a cool character progression for him. Otherwise, uh, a lot of his scenes did get cut out of the film. And this uh, this Blu-ray 4K transfer that we're that I'm watching, the uh, the Ghostbusters 2 disc is what made it worth buying. It's an underappreciated film, but it had so much cut out of it, including the scene that I'm talking about that is not included in these special effect uh, special effects in these special features, but. 
I really, really want to see someone take these scenes and add them back in because there's a lot of comedy gold with Rick Moranis chasing down Slimer and the whole interaction of, you know, between he and Annie Potts. For goodness sake, whoa, somebody's coming. I do that all the time when I... I will randomly interrupt somebody. <laughs> Some moldy Babylonian god. Sumerian, not Babylonian. See, then see that's just, that's such an asshole thing for him to say, but he plays it so straight. And then we here, look here. We have uh, another uh, connection. Uh, we have uh, Reginald Bell Johnson, who, along with William Atherton, is in Die Hard. Uh, at work, uh, we play a little game where they try and stump me. They'll give me an actor, and uh, you know the game uh, Six Degrees of Separation, where it's with Kevin Bacon. Well, I'll do it with Ghostbusters. So if they gave me, uh, God, I'm think off the top of my head, um, uh, crap. Uh, well, everybody, I think I could direct them to way too easily. Uh, oh God! For the sake for the sake of our argument, Johnny Depp. How do I connect Johnny Depp to Ghostbusters? Well, Johnny Depp was in Ed Wood, um, with Bill Murray, who played Bunny Beckenridge, who was in Ghostbusters. So I mean, like I can I can do it with anybody. Um, and uh, man, they've uh, they've come close to stumping me, but I always find a way. I love the. Uh, the nature of the uh, the <laughs> the coming of Gozer. There is a uh, it's implied there is a sexual act between the keymaster and the gatekeeper, which I mean it's it's so heavily implied in the names. Like how can you not see? What do you do with a with a gate? How do you open a gate? Well, you put the key in it. But it's just it's it's funny because uh, she's she's a good foot taller than him and. She's gorgeous, and he's a he's a bit of a nerd. Uh, Mayor Lenny, uh, one of the great uh, David Margulies, unfortunately, he's uh, passed away. He gives a great performance, very believable bureaucratic uh, 1980s politician. Ridiculous here. Is this true? Yes, it's true. This man has no dick. <laughs> Perfect. Comedy perfection. I think like if you were to study this film for why it works, um, you, you, even if you knew it like the back of your hand, you wouldn't be able to re replicate these things because it was just such, such a perfect storm of these actors and the script, the, the improvisational nature of it. The the casting, the casting of this film. Here's the uh, some of the religious elements kind of creeping back in. I love the balance between the well, like he just says, the religious impl implications of things is a sign from God. Uh, later on, when. 
they're getting ready to go into the into Dana's building, and you have the the rabbis down there, and uh, and here you have the you know the guy from the the Catholic Church. Um, it they they try to to blend together the whole idea that everybody, not just you know the Christian religion, but you know all these different uh, ideas of the end of the world very well maybe coming coming to fruition. What do you mean biblical? Real, Old Testament Testament type stuff. Real wrath of God. This is one of the greatest uh, rants here. Dogs and cats living together in mass hysteria. <laughs> we go to jail. Yeah, it's great. He, he His rationale here and the way he gets him... I think is is a completely reasonable attempt by a con artist to manipulate somebody in in this position. Like you will have saved the lives of all these registered voters, but isn't that like what every politician cares about? It's like you know to hell with what's right or wrong. I just need the constituents uh, to keep me in power. And then obviously in Ghostbusters two, he's making a bid for the for the run of uh, the governor of New York. And uh, you maybe could have continued it on with eventually uh, him getting to the top and being president. But I guess we'll never know. As a kid, I had the... Well, I actually still have it on cassette tape as a memento of my childhood. This song in particular, it got wore out. I... This to me, this was like the, it's like uh, Eye of the Tiger in, in Rocky or um, You Got the Touch and and in uh, Transformers, it, it just has this iconic feeling of like you're you're going into battle. Uh, you're the best around from the Karate Kid. And then you've got your your Christians and then over. Well, where they where they at? But anyways, you see all the. There they are, your uh, Hasidic Jews and their. Truthfully, I don't think before this movie I, I even knew what a Jewish person was. I remember asking my grandmother, like, what, what are what are they? <laughs> are they are they Amish? <laughs> uh. The the Ecto One incorrectly uh, has been referred to as a hearse by a lot of people. It's not. It's it's actually a it's a 1959 Cadillac ambulance. It's the the differences uh, basically just have to do with uh, the and how high the roof is. Uh, uh, the, the hearses have a higher roof because you have to have more clearance at the top, you know, loading corpses up and stuff. I love the uh, the rack, the gurney where they keep the proton packs on. I think that's a such a cool little little thing. I don't know how they did all this. I mean, when the the street caves in and movie magic abound. Those are some beautiful matte paintings the lightning I love that that 
push up. Although, with uh, Winston getting pretty much blocked in the back. You need Winston. He's arguably the most important character in the film strictly because you need you need that point of reference character to be able to to ask questions like why why this why that because if you have these Ivy League uh, characters saying these things then it doesn't uh, it doesn't ring true organically so you need that character that is a point of reference character for the audience to be able to ask these questions so you can make make sense of these ridiculous scenarios look at that it's it's beautiful like how did they do that i mean one would think like are they on a set um if they are then they've done a great job of of blending the uh you know the scenery with uh with the location Ghostbusters Ghostbusters <laughs> uh, God those ni 1980's uh, Death Wish style punks <laughs> their colored hair and their mohawks This now this is extended. You can see it's maybe four, maybe three, maybe four actual levels, and the matte painting has extended it up to you know make the. I'm gonna throw up. That's genius. They've sold the idea that the packs are you know heavy and and obviously you know the. Powers out, they can't take the elevators. And she's got nice legs. And look at that. His pants are undone. He's got a, a relieved look on his face. It's pretty obvious what just happened. And look at that. Their, their coitus uh, has uh, brought to fruition the, uh, the coming of Gozer. Some of the little throwaway lines here are just gold. And they get in the. They say, stairs, where do they go? And he just earnestly uh, says, they go up. <laughs> I don't think I uh, connected the dots that this was uh, Dana's apartment. Uh, as a kid, and you know, you look at it now. Look, this—that is a beautiful matte painting. But uh, back to what I was saying, you can see you see the charred piano where you know he hits the two keys, and like they hate this. A little attention to detail here. They, they go up. <laughs> Such a smart-ass thing to say. Like I mean, he's not—he's not wrong. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll bring up the rear. I'll let you guys get killed before me. 
the colors are, are very dynamic. Uh, this movie has a a very uh, rich color palette in the later part of the film and in the any any scene where the ghosts are. I guess it would have been very easy to to have made them very dingy and and stuff, but I I appreciate the the use of color. I, I mentioned earlier this this film is shot like a drama and not like a comedy. Well, at this point, it, it's uh, it's definitely not shot like a comedy. This is full on. Uh... Okay, she's a dog. <laughs> but it's uh, you know it, it's we've definitely gone into the full on sort of uh, sci-fi action realm. This scene always got me because it's so so quiet and ominous, and both of these guys have such co- comedic chomps. I I can I can understand the desire of them like. Oh well, it's being quiet. You need to be. You need to be saying something funny. But I, I really appreciate the fact that they let the movie breathe and the serious moments be serious. Yeah, we have Slavia, I believe is her name. But it's pronounced that very androgynous uh, Ziggy Stardust-looking deity. <laughs> That's a. Uh, here we get to see some of the the brilliant acting chops of Dan Aykroyd. You know, he throws lines out like they're. Uh, look at that. Those back then they didn't have the type of contacts that we have now in like movies, and it's pretty simple. If like someone wears contacts, they're they're soft, and you can get them in and out. Back then, you could only wear contacts for a short amount of time. They were made of glass. And those are full, those are full contact lenses. So those big, bright, red, glowing, demonic eyes that I can't imagine that it was comfortable. Funny story about this costume that uh, that Gozer is wearing. It was it was actually found in a uh, like a secondhand thrift shop in in the past decade in the you know like the cheap bin. And it was just so happened someone was lucky enough to be like, hey, wait a minute, this is Gozer's costume. And I think it sold for God knows how much at one of those uh, Hollywood auctions. So to you, if you're a god, you say, yes! One of the more memorable lines. Winston has a lot of great lines in this movie. He, you know, I love this town. That's a big Twinkie. He's so underappreciated. Actually, in the in the animated series, uh, Winston is my favorite character. My favorite episode is an episode called Night Game, where uh, they go to a baseball game that uh, is the being fought between uh, the the forces of good and evil. They every thousand years they get together and, and uh, they they battle in whatever the environment around them has become in regards to it. So there's a baseball field there. They have a baseball game. Thimble Little Minx, Thimble little minx isn't she? Aim for, the flat top. Aim for the flat top. 
<laughs> my uh, my father's sister, her name is Janet, my aunt, uh, she always had short, kind of spiky hair. And uh, I used to jokingly call her call her Gozer when I was a kid because it was not a... In, in Tennessee, I, I can't really speak for everywhere else, but there wasn't a lot of places where you would see a woman with that kind of cropped-off hairdo. She was very fashion-forward, I guess is what I'm trying to say. This scene right here used to legitimately scare me, the things crumbling and falling. I can look at it now, and it's very clearly a, a miniature in some of these shots. And I think a lot of that has to do with uh, the... You know the higher res scan on the on the Blu-ray, but even still, the parts that are actually a set, just bravo. It's so easy that things now, yeah, I say it, call it Phantom Menace syndrome, where they just CG. Like you don't even need an actual environment, just a CG, you know, a, a green screen background. Choose and perish. When when this movie was being first being conceived. Uh, originally, Ivan Reitman wanted to do Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And for whatever reason, that fell through. They either couldn't acquire the rights or the, the budget was going to be so astronomical that they decided against it. Well, when Dan Aykroyd was writing this, his first draft was super elaborate. So this whole choosing the form of the destructor is a holdover from that. And but there were supposed to be tons of these giant, you know, marshmallow man esque creatures and budgetary reasons. Uh, we get one, but I, I absolutely think they made the right choice. It's such a innocuous, uh, friendly looking, <laughs> friendly looking thing. You, you can't help but love it, and then it it sh very quickly uh, changes to a uh, such a menacing. <laughs> pissed off sailor the line uh, coming up about we, you know, he's a sailor, we get this guy laid uh, yet again another thing I didn't get as a kid look at him and in the, inside the uh, the costume we have uh, we got Billy Billy Bryan I believe is his name or William Bryan uh that's a beautiful, uh, they've connected the shots. You've got your your different film plates, uh, the people running around, and then he he's, they've built a, a miniature set, and, you know, it's just great compositing. I'm terrified beyond the... <laughs> irrational thought, yeah. Look at that. Nobody steps on a church in my town. <laughs> Look, I love this shot right there. That's uh, that's iconic. Mother pus bucket. 
I like to think like you know this this, this whole time Walter Peck is down there thinking like oh shit what what have I done like okay I can explain away a lot of this stuff but a hundred foot tall marshmallow man is is a little bit beyond me and here we have our uh, bringing back from the the first uh, act of the movie Yeah, get him, get him laid. So we've we've said something funny. Now we have to bring it back down. Cross the streams. People that have never seen this film, it seems to be one of the uh, you know, like beam me up, Scotty, which is technically never said in Star Trek, but it's 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 like one of those iconic lines like we're we're gonna need a bigger boat or just one of the aspects of the film that that has sort of extended itself beyond the property it's a part of the zeitgeist of of just popular culture the job is definitely not worth 11 five a year uh, i think adjusted for uh inflation like there's no way they could sustain this bill this uh this business on on that kind of money Now you could argue uh, in continuity that now there there's a peacock, which is the Paranormal uh, Contracts Oversight Commission. I believe that's the correct what it, it correctly stands for. I love that stay up in the back, like uh oh. But you could argue that now they're they're sort of under contract to the city and. Uh, they're being funded as a uh, a public service, you know, like the like garbage man or uh, or you know exterminators. The great thing about this movie that I think is sort of lost on people is that it's fantastical to think like, okay, you're you're fighting ghosts and all that stuff, but it's the mundaneness of it that makes it comical. Like, I mean, they're they're exterminators. They're the we're at the Sedgwick and they get on the they're trying to get on the elevator and the guy's like you know what are you supposed to be some kind of a cosmonaut he's like no we're exterminators someone saw cockro cockroach up on twelve I mean that's that's a pretty good analogy for for what they are they're they're paranormal exterminators they're garbage men they're they're everyday guys this is not a glamorous position they're they're not paid very much. Uh, I mean, I guess in volume they are their uh, their show because there's so much paranormal activity. They're working around the clock. No job is too big. No fee is too big. Uh, but to sustain their their business, uh, they're having to work their asses off. Like this is a job that like you would uh, you would definitely want some good benefits with. Even that being said, I love that Venkman is the one that is the least covered. In uh, in marshmallow, it just perfectly plays into his uh, into his nature. Oh, Bankman, I'm so sorry. It smells like barbecued dog. This is. 
kind of, I mean, he's not crying. They're not overly playing it, but you can see it in his eyes. I mean, he's he's genuinely sad. So this is as close to uh, character growth uh, that we really get. He likes Dana. Um, he may or may not have uh, brought drugs to knock her out uh, to um, like her physically, <clears throat> for lack of a better word. But, uh, damn it, he's such a likable potential rapist asshole that you, you can't help but love him. And here, one, this is... I love his voice. Go check on that little guy. <laughs> well, we're kind of wrapping things up. I have to say, all these years later, and as many times as I've seen this movie, it I still find new things about it that I love and and notice, and it's a growing experience, and one day when someone allows me to knock them up with Thorazine, and I can put my seed inside of them, and I have some children, maybe I can pass along my love of this film to them, and they can pass it on to the next generation. I think this is a film that is going to continue on and people are going to discover it. And it, we, we're in a time where media and, and information has never been more readily available. So there's there's no reason that this, the, for posterity's sake, that it will not continue on. I love this town. Ha <laughs> ha. And we get our, our resolution. That great Ray Parker Jr. song. Kind of closing things together. Oh, and look at that. She's like, ah, fuck it. I'll uh, watch my language. Uh, <laughs> directed by Ivan Ryman. Ivan Ryman, uh, you know, comedy giant. He did Meatballs with Bill Murray. Um, so many, uh, so many great films. He produced uh, Animal House. And, you know, Dan Aykroyd had a long career. His, he's, I mean, Sigourney Weaver is Academy Award winner. Bill Murray, uh, Bill Murray, and Dan Aykroyd are uh, Academy Award nominees. Bill Murray's a Golden Golden Globe winner. Uh, Rick Moranis has become a bit of a recluse. Uh, unfortunately, his when his wife passed away, he, he took away to be a good dad to his kids very admirable um Annie Potts uh you know designing women she had a long career William Atherton uh you know unfortunately this this movie uh had a negative effect on him to some degree because uh people constantly calling him dickless and kind of it's crazy that like people can't separate uh <laughs> characters uh from their from their actor personas Ernie Hudson, you know, has continually worked. I just saw him. He popped up in, in uh, the new uh, revival of Twin Peaks, which obviously I'm a big fan of. Just these names that you're seeing in the credits, their names, Joe Medjuck and Michael Gross, they're, they were very instrumental in the, in the creation of the animated series. Richard Edlin, his uh, his effects. I wish they had gone with him for the sequel, and that's not to say that the the uh, 
the music wasn't good, but it, it definitely, uh, or crap, the effects weren't good, but it, they they have more of a charm in this film than they do in the sequel. Bernie Bernie Brillstein, uh, uh, Elmer Bernstein, like so many memorable names of people that had careers that go beyond just this movie. Stacked production. Well, I'm pretty sure you're not going to stay around to uh, to watch all these uh, credits with me, but I'll I'll say a, a couple more things, and we'll wrap this up. When when I was a kid, like the thought of having a proton pack or you know a jumpsuit, a PK meter, a trial, like any of that stuff, was so appealing. And obviously, you know the Kenner. They they had those those toys but you get to a certain age and you know you're supposed to grow up but this this movie has uh, has grounded me in childhood forever i'm uh i'm very glad to say that uh when i was in my mid-20s i i i got a proton pack i've got a trap a pk meter two jumpsuits um i vicariously getting to live through this this universe is it's very appealing. If you're a Star Trek fan, you know, you want to wear a, uh, a Trek uniform to a con. If you're, uh, if you like Star Wars, you, you want to dress like Darth Vader. The interesting thing about uh, Ghostbusters fandom that makes it a little more unique than, than other ones that are, that are major is that you get to be yourself as a Ghostbuster. You don't see a lot of people, like, dressing up as Vankman they want to be Joe Blow, who is also a Ghostbuster. So when I dress up, I'm not, you know, I'm not Dan Aykroyd. I'm not, I'm not Bill Murray. I, I'm me. I get to be the Ghostbuster. And then when they did the video game, you know, you're not playing as them. You're playing as a rookie. So I never wanted to be, I, and I guess I take that back. I, I almost said I never wanted to be Peter Vankman uh, because in a lot of ways I, I have become him. But uh, I've I've enjoyed being myself and integrating myself into the Ghostbusters universe, and I would highly recommend uh, anybody gets the opportunity uh, that they do the same. Well, signing off from the Black Lodge for the two of you or negative five of you that will actually be listening to this. Um, when I do another one of these someday, it's probably going to be a lot more rant-filled because I'm thinking that's what you want from me, and probably not two hours long. <laughs> but this is something I've always wanted to do, and I think I've uh, fulfilled another thing off my bucket list. So in the meantime, it's me signing out. See you later.